Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. So, uh, so tonight uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verse 35 through 44, the section of Mark that Avery just read for us a moment ago. Um, and uh, if you have your Bibles and want to be turning there, again, that's Mark chapter 12. Uh, three stories that may at first reading uh, seem completely unrelated to one another. Uh, they're kind of diasporate. They don't necess- you read it and you don't necessarily know exactly how these three link together, but I promise they do. So just bear uh, with me. Uh, and we're actually going to start on the third story, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 41, and we're going to kind of work our way backwards. So if you have your Bible and want to be turning there, Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Well, I'm going to give you a, a spoiler alert. Um, the, the, the thing that three, these three stories excuse me, have in common together uh, is they're about perspective. Um, these three stories are, are all about how your perspective of a particular person or of a particular situation changes the way that you interact with that person or with that situation. So I'll give you an example. Um, if you were here this last weekend, you were at the retreat uh, for the RFC, and, and hopefully you had a wonderful time. But you met Micah Cobb, who got his master's here a few years ago, um, and or a few years ago, really, several years ago now, many years ago, by, by many of your standards. But he got his master's here at Oxford, and uh, he tells this story of, of one time, it was um, while, while he was here getting his degree, after a basketball game one time, he was kind of wandering around downtown the square of Oxford, and um, he saw that there was a store that had put a poem in, in the window. So he kind of wanders up to the window and starts reading the poem, and while he's walking up, he noticed someone that's standing at the window, also reading the poem, just this normal guy with a baseball cap and blue jeans on. And so he walks up, and he kind of stands beside the guy and starts reading through the poem. And as he gets, as he gets a little further down in the poem, he realizes that the person standing there reading the poem at the window kind of looks familiar to him. And so he starts trying to think, like, where, where, where recognizes him from? Like, Micah, not the most subtle human being on the planet, is trying to, like, subtly figure out who this person is next to him. And about the time the guy starts walking away, it dawns on him. The person standing next to him, reading this poem with him, is none other than Morgan Freeman. Like, the voice of gold of Hollywood is standing there, reading this poem next to Micah Cobb, and it's too late. Like, he's already, he's already gone. Like, that, that's it. Like, that's Micah's claim to fame, his interaction with the one and only Morgan Freeman, and that was it. And Micah was kicking himself, because it's like... If he had realized sooner, if, his, if he had perceived correctly, the person standing at the window reading the poem was none other than the Morgan Freeman, like, you know, the best voice in all of Hollywood. If it was that guy, then he would have, like, he would have treated the situation completely different. You know, like, I don't think Mike is a big fanboy, but he would have tried to, like, you know, make some comment about the poem or, like, impress Morgan Freeman or, you know, like, he would have tried to, like, you know, make some comment. He would have, the situation would have been completely different, but because he didn't perceive it correctly, he, he didn't interact with Morgan Freeman the way that he would have liked to. Uh, and, you know, I think you, we all have these examples, like the way you interact with your professor versus the way you interact with a fellow student, the way you interact with somebody here versus, like, uh, you know, a campus worker or somebody like that. It, it, based on the, what you perceive going into the situation, you interact with people differently based off what you know about them, based off a certain context, based off your perception of certain situations. And so tonight we're going to be talking about how your perception affects the way that you go throughout life, the way that your perception affects how you view certain situations, or certain people. And so Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 41. This is what we read. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. 
Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And so our, our first story tonight concerns this uh, widow who comes to the temple courts. And just to kind of set the scene, you need to understand the temple is like the, the center of, of the Jewish uh, religion, but it's also the center of like the Jewish society. Like all the important things that happen in Jewish society happen in this temple. So it's this very large, very ornate, very well-decorated building. I like, think of like a city hall. It's like this big scene. And there's these collection boxes that are set up. And, and even the collection boxes are ornate, right? Like the way they're set up, they're kind of like shaped like a trumpet bell at the top and then the box at the bottom. And it's done like that intentionally so that when people come and like, put in their offerings, you can like hear the noise the coins make as it kind of tumbles through this thing and and ends up in the box below. And Jesus is sitting there in the temple courts with his disciples, and he's sitting across from these these, uh, collection boxes, and they're they're looking at it, and it says many wealthy people are coming and giving their offerings. And and I'm not exactly sure how much money is a lot of money in this day and age, but I just imagine like, you know, somebody coming with like cartoonishly large bags of coins, like the green money symbol on the outside, and they just walk up to the thing, and they're like dumping like coin after coin, and it's making like this huge sound as it kind of falls through the collection box and gets gathered at the bottom. And then all of a sudden, enters this very humble, very lowly widow. And what's important to understand about the situation is that widows in the Old Testament are symbolic for a group of people who are very likely to be disenfranchised because they're very weak, they're very vulnerable, it's very easy to prey on them and take advantage of them. A widow in ancient Jewish society is seen as uh, kind of less than in the honor-shame culture. She has very low opportunity to to make money or or any source of income socially. um, She's kind of seen as a burden at times. Spiritually, there are many who would look down upon her. And this widow enters into this temple court filled with people who are wealthy, who are giving all these different donations, this loud cacophony of, of all this money falling into a box. And I imagine her entering in feeling so out of place that she almost feels shy or embarrassed to be there. She walks up to this collection box and she puts in the equivalent of two pennies. They make almost no sound amidst this tumbling of coins out of bags into the treasury. She comes and tosses in two copper pieces. And Jesus, the way he describes it, she gives all that she had, everything. And that word everything in Greek is bios. It's where we get the word biology from. It means her life. She put in everything that she had, all that she had. She gave away to the temple courts in that moment. And Jesus looks at her. And praises her. And if you've heard this story before, you know, you might have heard it at VBS or you might have heard a sermon on it, and, and, and many people use it to preach about generosity or charity or, or how we're called to give of ourselves. And all those things are definitely true. But I, I think if we take a moment to pause and reflect on this story, many of us wouldn't respond in that way at first. I, I think if you knew the widow, you'd have a hard time saying, oh, like, what an example of like charity and generosity. Like, just imagine you have a personal relationship with this widow. She's the widow who lives down the street from you. And, and you help her out around the house, like maybe you, you help clean up, or you, you mow her lawn, you go and pick up groceries for her, like, you know, sometimes you go and get her gas, you, you try to help out, and you know the situation she's in. She's financially destitute, she's in real trouble, she has no real security or economic promise or privilege, she, she's in a lot of trouble. And, and you find out that she goes to the temple courts, and she puts in two pennies, all she had, everything she had left, she goes to the temple courts, and she gives it away. 
if you're anything like me in that situation, I don't know if my first instinct would be to praise that action. I'd be, I'd, I'd be a little frustrated. I'd be a little concerned. I'd say, what, like, what are you thinking? Like, why would you give away all the money that you had? Because again, let's just imagine, you know, all you account majors out there, imagine you're an accountant for the temple. Like when you're counting all the, the funds that are in there, you're counting up all the coins, it's not gonna be like, whoo, thank goodness for these two pennies. You know, if we hadn't had that, you know, we would have gotten the red. It's like, the, not only does her gift seem so insignificant, like it doesn't make a practical impact, but it's all that she had. Like it just, it doesn't seem practical. <laughs> Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem practical. It doesn't seem like there's there's any reason to it. She's senselessly giving away everything that she had, her entire life. She deposits in this treasury box. And again, if you're anything like me, I can't help but wonder, like why? Not not like why? Why would you adopt this posture? Why would you give everything that you have? Why would you do that? Not only why, but how, how could you stomach that sort of charity? How could you stomach that sort of generosity? When she leaves the temple courts, she has nothing left. How, how does a person do that? I, I mean, I don't understand. And so just for a moment, we're going to move to the next story, but just let that question hang in the air. Just in the back of your brains, be thinking, why and how could she do this? Why and how could she find herself in this position? So the next story, or the story back, depending on how you're looking at it, uh, it starts in verse 38. And Jesus is teaching uh, in the temple, and he starts talking about the teachers of the law. And the teachers of the law are, are these people of, of position and prominence. Um, you know, if, if you were a Jewish mother, you wanted your son to grow up to be a teacher of the law. Like, they were the spiritual elite. They were the best of the best. They were the people who knew God's law the best. They were the people who practiced God's law. They were the ideal Jewish person. They, like, they looked after all of God's laws and statutes. They were the best Jewish person you could be. Everybody wanted to be a teacher of the law. But in a religious society where there's no separation between church and state, not only were they the religious elite of their day, not only were they supposed to be like the people who knew God's word the best, not only were they supposed to be the ideal Jewish person who practiced God's law perfectly, not only that, they were also like the legal system. The, the society was shaped around them. They weren't just religious leaders, they were societal leaders. They were lawyers and judges and magistrates. It was their responsibility to know God's law, but also to carry out God's law. It was their responsibility to look after those people who were poor and disenfranchised. This group of people who fall into categories with widows and orphans, the foreigner, the poor, and the oppressed. It was their job to dispense God's justice out into the world. They were teachers of the law. They were supposed to know God's heart, know what he wanted, and to live it out in the world. But they were also supposed to dispense God's justice to the people of Israel. And Jesus gets ready to teach about them. And this is what he says. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at banquets. But verse, verse 40, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So here they are, the teachers of the law, the best of the best, the people who are supposed to know God's heart more fully than anyone, the people who are supposed to be the ideal Jewish person. And what we see is that it's all about them. This position of prominence, it's all about them. It's no longer in service of learning God's heart. It's no longer in service of knowing God's law or looking after the people of the society. But they are teachers of the law, and, and they want the power that comes with it. They want the prestige to walk through the marketplace and to be seen in these lengthy and flowing robes and to be greeted with respect. They want to flex their power and their authority and their prestige so people see them and say, that's what I want to be like. I want to be like that guy. 
That's the one, that's who I want to be when I grow up. That's, that's what they want. They want that sort of recognition and prestige. They, they want these seats of honor at banquets and at the synagogue and, and in honor-shame culture. It's very important where you sit. Like, it's a big deal. The, the more important you are in society, the more honorable you are in society, the better seat you get at a banquet or, or in a synagogue. And she's saying, that's all they care about. They don't care about God's law. They don't care about God's heart. They, they just want these seats of position and power and prominence. They just want to be recognized. They want people to look at them and see them as the authority. They want people to look at them and see them as a person of power or prestige. And what's worse is they're willing to abuse the very people who God identifies with in the most in the Old Testament. The group of people that God identifies with most over and over and over again in the Old Testament are the widows and the orphans and the poor and the foreigner and the disenfranchised. Those are the people. Israel's law was set up to protect those people. God's heart over and over again says he's going to be opposed to the people who are opposed to them. And the teachers of the law, the ones who are supposed to be the best of the best, who dispense God's social justice, they have disenfranchised and hurt the widows and the orphans and the poor and the foreigners. And by the way, the language that gets used here, that they're devouring the widows' houses, it's not like it just happens every once in a while. There are a few kind of isolated cases. The language that gets used shows us that it's a system of like systemic oppression. It's a system of systematic like evil, like breaking down the barriers. They're constantly oppressing and disenfranchising the people who are most vulnerable and weak and needy. The very people they are called to protect. The very people they are supposed to have the best heart for. And then they go to the temple. And they make these long, lengthy prayers. They pray these prayers to God about you know, how much they, they want to know his heart and how much they want to follow his will. They make these long and lengthy prayers. And Jesus says, just for show. These people who are supposed to know God, who are supposed to be close to God, who are supposed to know his heart more and better than anybody else, and look out for the people in society who, are, who God was closest to, who are most disenfranchised and, and weak and humble and lowly. And the question I have is exactly the same one I have for the widow, is, is how, how could they possibly get there? How could they have fallen so far from their original calling? Like, why? Like, what purpose? Do they not know? They, they're supposed to know the law. They should know that God cares most for the widows and orphans, and those are the very people they're disenfranchising. Those are the very people they're oppressing. Those are the people they're ripping off to get the power and prestige and honor and, you know, all those different things they have. And my question is, why and how? How do they fall into that position? Why are they doing this? And just to circle back to the widow, you know, if you didn't pick up on this, the teachers of the law, the people they're oppressing, are the widows. The, the woman who comes to the temple court and gives everything she has, she puts all her life in the collection box. That's the person who's being oppressed, and she's donating to the very system that caused her oppression and disenfranchisement. And again, just imagine you know her, and you see the situation for what it is. I would be so concerned so frustrated. Why would you go and give everything you have? How can you stomach going to give everything that you have to a system that has disenfranchised and oppressed you? It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. So, two very different groups of people. Uh, one, a, a Jewish widow who has absolutely nothing. Uh, one group, a teacher of the law who has everything. 
And the question I have for both of them is, is how and why do they live the kind of lives that they do? And, and this last story, this first one in, in kind of chronological order that kicks off these set of stories, I think tells us why and how both groups find themselves in the place they do. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say the Messiah is the Son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Okay, so I feel like that explains both, uh, both people pretty well. So you guys can break up into your groups, and we're going to discuss... I'm just kidding. Uh, that was a joke, but it didn't land very well. So, um, <laughs> so, 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 but this story really does, this is the one that explains how and why both people act the way they do in the story. So, so let's just walk through it really quickly and, and see what's going on behind the scenes. So Jesus is teaching, and he asks this question. Why do the teachers of the law say the Messiah is the son of David? So the son of David is a popular title that gets used all throughout Jewish society at this time about the coming Messiah. And it's because in the Old Testament, it gets prophesied the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. It's going to come from the tribe of Judah. It's going to come from like the house of David. It's just like the Messiah descends from David, so they call him the son of David. But here's the only problem with that. Again, in an honor-shame society like this one, when you say someone is the son of someone else, it means in some way they are subservient to the other person. So the title son of David has kind of implicit, the way they would have understood it, is that the son of David was kind of subservient to the original David. The son of David, his purpose and his intent, his plans, would be to come to restore the kingdom that David had built. That was the purpose of the Messiah. So they envision, this is, you know, this is where they get the idea, the Messiah is supposed to be this king who comes in and overthrows the Romans and takes over the surrounding areas and they bring power and position and authority and prestige to Israel through human means because that's exactly what David did. And if the Messiah is the son of David, it makes sense that he would do the same things that his father had done. He patterns his kingdom after his father's kingdom. And so Jesus, what he does next is he works to reshape how they view his identity. Verse 36, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. By the way, that's a reference to Psalm 110, which is just talking about the Messiah. Verse 37, David himself calls the Messiah Lord. So how then can he be his son? So Jesus talks about this particular part of scripture and what he's showing the crowd is that the coming messiah he might be the son of david yes that is true he's the biological son of david but david himself doesn't refer to messiah as a son but as his lord david himself says the coming messiah isn't going to be reestablishing david's kingdom he isn't going to be recreating the davidic kingdom he's not subservient to david in some sort of way but the coming messiah is going to build a better kingdom than the kingdom that david could have built and, and the crowd kind of gets this. You see the, the last verse that we have. The large crowd listened to him with delight. They're excited because they realize the claim that Jesus is making is the coming kingdom of the Messiah. It is not like a, a version of David's kingdom. It's not like going to try to restore David's kingdom. It is better than David's kingdom. What Jesus is doing is he's reshaping the way they think about God. And not just the way they think about God, but his designs and his purposes. How he's going to bring about what he's going to be, bring about. Because again, David's kingdom was he overthrew the surrounding regions, he, he, he attacked them with this mighty military power, he did bring authority and prestige and power to Israel and to the name of God, but he did it through human means. He did it through military might, through force and violence and warfare. 
And Jesus comes as the new Messiah. Yes, the son of David, but also the son of God. And he's going to build the kingdom the way his father would want it to be built. It's not accomplished through military means. It's not accomplished through violence. It's not accomplished through power. It's accomplished through Jesus adopting a posture of service and love, forgiveness, self-sacrifice. Those are the tools of the new kingdom. And it's so much better than the kingdom David could have ever hoped to build. So much more full, so much more brilliant and beautiful than the kingdom that David could have ever hoped to build. What Jesus does is he reshapes the very way they think about who God is and how his identity lets him act and, and be in the world. And I think that explains how and why both people act the way they do in the story. The Pharisees misperceive something about God. You know, like Micah coming up to Morgan Freeman at the window and so having a terrible interaction. The, 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 the teachers of the law, they misperceive something about the way God works in the world. They misperceive something about his nature. They think God is coming to set up a kingdom of military might and power to bring them authority and prestige and prominence and privilege, and that he's going to do it through human means. And so we shouldn't be surprised when the very fabric of their life, the very fabric of the way they think about the world is permeated with that reality. Because they pursue a life of power and prestige and prominence and position, and they do it through human means. The way they think about God, their idea about who God is and how he works in the world shapes the very fabric of the way they think about how they interact with the world and what they're calling. The widow, on the other hand, she perceives something so true and right about who God is. She perceives that God is someone who is loving and caring and just and who will always provide. She understands that God oftentimes use, uses those who are most weak and most lowly and most humble to accomplish the greatest things that no one thought was possible. She understands that God has a special heart for the class of people that she falls in. And because God loves her and cares for her and is extraordinarily present, he will provide and make a way. And so because of that, she can give away everything she has. It's all about what they think and see about God. The way they, they view God, the way they talk about God, the way they think about God, and how he works in the world permeates and shapes the very fabric of everything they do in their lives. And the same thing is true for us. The way we think and talk about God, the way that we approach God, the way that we, we talk about our theology, the way that we try to capture the identity of God, the character of God, and the way that he works in the world, those things matter. Because it shapes the very fabric of the way that we go about our life. And here's the thing, this, this isn't a very practical point, this isn't a very hands-on point, but I, I think it's important to make this point because we in the 21st century American church have an obsession with practical Christian points. We in the 21st century church love a good practical point of application. I mean, we love to talk about conflict, right? Because Jesus tells us this is how we should handle conflict. You know, we, we should approach someone in love. You know, if we've said something foolish or done something wrong, we humble ourselves and apologize. And then, and then after that, you know, if we have to confront somebody about something they've done wrong, again, we go with a posture of humility and love and we strive to correct them as a brother in Christ would or a sister in Christ would. We love it because it's so practical. I can immediately apply it to my life. 
We love when Jesus talks about generosity or money because it's just, it's so applicable, right? We all make money. We all have money. We all live in a world where money is like the currency that we use to do things and have things. And so like, be generous. Okay, I understand what that means. I'm supposed to give money away. Like tithe. Okay, yeah, I understand that. We love a good practical point when it comes to relationships or dating or marriage. We love a good practical point. And here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with that. The, the, the story of, of God, the gospel, Jesus, they, they do make practical calls on your life to do things differently. But here's the thing, if you approach the Bible or the Christian faith primarily as a list of practical take-home points that are supposed to change the way that you do things in your life, that is no different than any other secular philosophy in the world today. Every, every other secular philosophy in the world follows the exact same logic. That, okay, I, I should live in, in you know, way X, Y, and Z for reasons A, B, C, and because of that, that's how I'm going to live. Like, it's just, it's the logical end of an equation. Like, that's, that's all it is. If the reason you come to the Bible and Christianity and all you're looking for out of God is practical insights telling you exactly how to live in a specific sort of way, it's no different than any other secular philosophy. If you want Jesus to just kind of enhance or enrich your life, you know, if you want him to give you motivation, if you want him to kind of give you uh, insight about how to have better relationships or how to handle conflict, you can get all those same things from a motivational speaker. You don't need God anymore. If that's why you're coming to Christianity or the Bible, you've eliminated the need for God because you can go to a motivational speaker and get all the exact same things. We have an obsession in the 21st century church with practical, hands-on application points, and I understand that desire. Those things are good. We should look for practical, hands-on application points. But here's the thing that all, I think all too often we misunderstand. The Bible, first and foremost, more than anything else, the Christian religion, first and foremost, more than anything else, it's not about practical take-home points. It's not about motivation. It's not a how-to guide. It's not a reference book. It is a revelation about the very nature and character of who God is. The Bible, before it is anything else, is a revelation about the nature and the character of who God is. And it's not always easy to derive practical points from that. But it's equally as important to reflect on. Because the way that we view who God is, the way that we talk about God, the way that we understand God, the way he works through his purposes, the way that he brings about his kingdom on this earth, those things are important because they're going to permeate the very fabric of everything you do, the way that you go about being a Christian. Everything, who you are, is all going to be based on who you think God is. Your view of God desperately and deeply matters. But it's hard because I can't give you six practical points about God's grace. I can't give you three take-home points about how to dispense God's justice in the world. I can't give you like, you know, 10 lessons that you can learn from seeing the beauty of God in creation. Like there's not like, there's nothing super practical or emergent that you can immediately see and apply. And so all too often, I think when we have these conversations about the nature of God or the character of God or the beauty that we see in God or, or how we see him act and, and live out his purposes, all too often we don't understand that that is practical. I hear people, when they have those conversations, when we hear a lesson like this, they say, oh, it wasn't practical. And sometimes I just want to shake them because how could it not be practical to learn about the God who created and made and sustains the universe? What could be more practical than that? Just sit and reflect on his identity and his nature. What could be more practical? What could be better? What could affect your life more than that? And like we see with the Pharisees 
when you misperceive something about God, when you don't understand, when you have a misconception or you have a bad view or bad theology, when you don't quite understand who God is and his nature and his character or the way that he works things out, it's going to warp the fabric of your life. Sin is going to come into your life and it's going to infect everything that you do. The systems that you touch will become filled with sin and, and inevitably become uh, part of an oppressive, you know, kind of way of, of living. And so the question that I have that I want us to reflect on for just a little bit, and this is, you know, this is a discussion part. I know I've, I've talked a lot for 27 minutes, but this is a discussion part, so feel free to respond, is what are misconceptions that our culture has about God? What are misconceptions that the church broadly has about God? What are misconceptions that you have about God? His nature or his character or the way that he works like, what are misconceptions that any of those three different groups have? And how do we see that, like, take place? Like, how does that warp the way that people respond to things in the world? So, so what, are some, what are some ideas? Like, what are misconceptions that you see either in culture or the church or in your own life that kind of change the way that you interact with the world or with people? People think he's always angry, so he gets scared. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so if you think God's always angry... You're always going to be in a posture of defense when it comes to God. Like, I'm never going to have a relationship where I open up to him. I'm always going to be afraid to, like, go before God. So, yeah, I think that's good. We, we see God as angry all the time, or culture oftentimes sees God as very angry. And so, like, you know, it changes the way you approach him. I think that's good. What else? What are, Yeah. 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 Like, uh, like the you know, talking about like people think suffering comes as like a punishment from God. Yeah. And and there like there have been people who have that view and hold it so deeply that it poisons their belief in the Christian faith. They think, how can I serve a God who's going to give me cancer because I messed up, you know, in this thing like 10 years ago? There are people who hold that view, and it's bad theology. Theology matters. The way we think about God, the way we talk about God matters. And, and because they have that bad view, it poisons their, their view of Christianity. I think that's good. I think that's good. What else? Yeah. Go ahead. That he's only paying attention to us when we're paying attention to him or we need him. Oh, wow. That's such a good one. Because, again, like, it, I think it, it, it brings on this posture of, like, uh, we bring on airs when we try to come back to God. Like, it makes repentance all the more difficult. Like, we think God's done with us. He's written us off. When in reality, the, the picture of God we see in the Old Testament and, and in the New is a God who is constantly in pursuit of his people, even when they do the dumbest thing possible. Like, go read through the Old Testament, and you'll see people who do the dumbest thing possible over and over and over again. And the story of the Old Testament is God's consistent faithfulness, even in the face of their stupidity and rebellion. Even when they walk away, God still loves them. Yeah, I think that's great. What else? Sorry, yeah. God works on our timing. Okay, yeah, so they have this misconception that, like, God's plans are like my plans. Like, when I want this to happen, God's going to do this. And when that doesn't happen, you think, okay, God, you know, like, who are you? Like, where are you? Like, you're not doing what I wanted you to do when I wanted you to do it. Are you even real? Like, you question. Again, I've known people who walk away from the faith because of that very view. Like, it gets very poisonous. I think that's good. Yeah. I think, like, one thing I've seen is, like, um, we think God is, like, kind of far off and distant remote. Yeah. But he jumps in off the sideline, picks our problems when I have one. Right? Yeah. Like that's, you know, it's the view of the cosmic lifeguard or divine butler. Um, and I've seen, like, like anything like short-term mission trips, yeah. I think that's actually one of the most, like, concrete versions of this is, like, 
what is a short-term mission trip but us embodying that view of God? Mm. We're going to go in, we're going to fix the problem, we're going to leave. Yeah. Because that's how we picture God. Yeah. He comes and he fixes our problem and he leaves. But also we do that with like people. You know, like, oh, like someone comes to me with a problem. Instead of relating to them, I immediately go into problem solving mode because, well, that's how God works, right? Yeah. You know, I may not think that way, but it, it happens. It permeates my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sorry, I just, I, I just saw it in the hand. I'll get to it in just a second. But by the way, Ben made a great point there that I think is applicable to everything else we said so far. The way that we think about God is eventually going to affect the way we think about other people, right? Like, if you think God's not pursuing me when I'm not thinking about God, it's really easy to adopt that posture towards other people. Like, if they're not thinking about me, I'm not going to think about them because that's how God works. You know, God works on, on my timing. And so if it's inconvenient for me to deal with you in a specific time, God doesn't want me to deal with you. You know, the way we think about God not only affects our relationship with God, but it affects the way we relate to other people too. So yeah, I think I think that's great. Yeah, there was another hand. Yes, uh, well, you guys can fight amongst yourselves. I think there's a misconception like that God hates people that aren't Christians. Like I've been seeing a lot of TikToks recently. It's like uh, having to explain to my friends that I'm not the you're a terrible person Christian, but like oh I love every great Christian. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, that's a great point. We're gonna come back in just a second at the end, but to something like that. But. Oh, so man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Or let me just say it a different way that God is in heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So where's heaven? Because if you have that perception or conception of God, yeah. like, it doesn't really make sense. And the air breathes. Yeah, and I think that's great because, again, the, the inevitable view is that, like, okay, I shouldn't be looking for God until I get to heaven. Like, while I'm here, I don't have to look for God. God's not here. He's in heaven. So I don't need to, you know, here doesn't matter. I should be looking at heaven. But God is very present here. Uh, so any, any, other, any other thoughts, any other ideas, misconceptions we have about who God is? Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the bad things. Like, the, you said muddy, right? M-U-D-D-Y. Okay. Um, yeah, he, he doesn't get involved in, like, the nitty-gritty, the, the tough things, the difficult things. Like, he's, you, you can get too unclean or too dirty and, like, not... Uh, not be from God. So uh, th- there's a couple points. I-, I have three that I'm going to go through just really quickly. Um, but before I do that, just by the way, this is a practical point of, I think, of mission. And when, when you talk to people about, about who God is, and when you talk to people about the Christian faith, the point that Zoe made a minute ago is that, like, you know, you have to explain to people a lot of times, like, no, 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 I, I, don't, I don't believe that. Like, if God was the way that we just described him, like the misconceptions that we have or that, like, culture has, I wouldn't want to believe in that God. Like, that, it makes sense that people don't want to believe in that God but this, again, is why theology matters. It's important who God is. It's important that we talk about his nature and his character. It's important that we talk about how we see his beauty reflected in the world around us. It's important that we talk about how he accomplishes his means. Because if people have misconceptions about that, if people think poorly of God, it's no wonder they're not interested in the Christian religion. So, sorry, that was a, a, a sidebar. But um, just a couple of uh, uh, things really quickly. I think we see three misconceptions that, that jump out in the story. Uh, the first one is, is with the widow. Uh, she sits down uh, and, and goes to the temple course, and she gives everything she has, and it doesn't even make a dent. It doesn't feel like it makes a difference at all. And I think a miscon- Jesus praises her for that, right? Like, it seems like, again, I, I would chide her, but Jesus praises her. And what that shows me is a misconception I carry about God is that God cares about fruit and not about a posture of faithfulness. And that's so backwards. What God cares about more than anything else is a posture of faithfulness and not about fruit. I had a friend in college um, who I was really close to. He, he was a professing um, agnostic. I invited him to come to Devo's like this uh, on several occasions, and he came. But I was always afraid to talk to him and engage with him. In fact, I, I kind of kept those conversations at arm's length. And the reason was because I knew how that conversation was going to go in my head. I knew that if I tried to talk to him about Jesus, if I tried to talk to him about the gospel, he wasn't going to be interested. He was going to see it as a drag, and it was going to end in a failure. 
And because God cares about fruit, I just don't have to, I don't, I, I shouldn't fool with that conversation. But what a misconception that was. If I had taken the time to sit down and, and genuinely engage in that conversation in a posture of faith, in that moment, God's heart would have been filled with so much joy that I had taken the time. Even, even if it didn't develop any fruit, even if nothing came from that conversation, God would have delighted in the fact that I adopted a posture of faith. When you see someone on the side of the road with a sign and you don't want to give them a $20 bill because they could go spend it on alcohol or drugs or, you know, God knows what. I think it's a misconception in the same way that we care too much about fruit and not about faith. Because here's the thing, they could, yeah, 100%. And if they do that, God still delights in the fact that you adopted a posture of faith. He is overjoyed at the posture of faith that you've adopted. God cares more about faith than he does about fruit. It's a common misconception we have that it's the opposite. Uh, the teachers of law, I think, show that oftentimes they think God is distant, right? Like they, they're trying to think about God's kingdom in their own way, with their own means. They're going to they're gonna establish the prominence and the position and authority. They're going to do what they're supposed to do, and they're going to do it in their own way. And I think what that shows us is they don't trust God to be acting and working on their behalf. They're so blind. They think God is so distant and it's their responsibility, they wind up killing the very Son of God. I mean, the irony is, is so unfortunate. It's tragic that they completely miss the point. But I wonder how often do we see God as distant and so we completely shut down the things he's doing in our midst. We don't look for the fact that God is present in our here and now, that he makes calls on our lives in the here and now, that he is present and active and working to bring about opportunity, to bring about growth and strength, all these different things that he's pouring into your life constantly and consistently, whether you're pursuing him or not, whether you're thinking about him or not, if you feel too unclean or not, God is all around you, all encompassing at all times and always working all things for your good. And I think oftentimes we have this misconception that he's not. The last one uh, is just that the way Jesus talks about the, God's purposes and, and plans, the way he talks about it in the very beginning, is that it's, it's in the form of a kingdom. And I think one of the misconceptions we have about God is that the, the cross is the only thing that matters. And, and, and the cross is certainly central. It's the gateway into the kingdom of God. It's the, the kind of defining moment of the kingdom of God. It shows us who God is. It's the most perfect revelation of God's character and his nature and the way that he accomplishes his purposes in this world. But the cross brings about a kingdom. The Christian religion is not just about me trying to be a good person. It's not just about me waiting until I die to go to heaven. But, but the the Christian religion, God's purposes and plan is to bring about his kingdom here on this earth, even as you live and breathe, even as you go out on campus. God's plans and purposes is to bring about the redemption and reconciliation of all things, not just in the by and by, not just long down the road, not just that you can be a good person so you can kind of get an escape ticket like from this crashing ship, but that you would work every single day to reconcile everything possible in your sight to God. That when you stop and you pick up trash that's on the ground and you put it in the trash can, you're reconciling creation to God. You're not just being a nice person. You're taking part in the reality of the kingdom of God. That when you have a conversation with a friend about who God is, even if you don't think it's going to end the way you want it to, you're participating in the reconciliation of that person to God. When you enter into healthy conflict, you're not just working out your relationships. You're not just resolving a problem for yourself, but you're entering into the reality of the kingdom of God. You're reconciling all things to his way and his means. Theology is, is so, so important. And I know all too often it doesn't feel very practical. It's, it's not very easy to just sit and reflect and think on the nature of God or the character of God or how God works, unless you're a huge nerd like me and then it gets easier. But, but guys, this is, it's, 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 so, it's so important. How you think about God, the way that you talk about God, the language that you use, 
when you talk about him to yourself or to your friends or to people who don't believe, the way you talk about God is going to shape the very fabric of the way that you think he works in your life. So, um, like normal, we have uh, some questions that we're going to break up into groups and discuss and then we'll be done. Um, the question is the one that we talked about just a minute ago. Like, what is, what is one misconception um, that, that you feel like you struggle with in God's nature? Like, how, how do you oftentimes misperceive of God? Um, that's a tough question. Like, I think that's one that deserves further thought and reflection. Um, but uh, just what's, what's one that resonates with you? Um, how does that change kind of the way that you act in the world? And then this is the bonus third question that we didn't talk about. How do you combat that view? Like how do you start living into the true nature of God's character? So what is the misperception you have about God's character? How does that affect your life? And then how can you start combating it?